Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Before 8 a.m. on Saturday morning, February 10, 1990, 34-year-old Stephanie Sinak arrived at New Mexico's Las Cruces Bowling Alley at 1201 East Amador Avenue in Las Cruces, New Mexico, where she worked as the manager. The alley was owned by her father, Ron, who was in Arizona at the time, golfing with a friend. One of her brothers, RJ, also worked behind the bar, but was not there on this particular day. Stephanie brought along her 12-year-old daughter, Melissa Repass, and Melissa's 13-year-old friend, Amy Hauser, to help run the alley's daycare that day. Before opening, Stephanie was in her office with about one hour to spare before the weekly Junior Bowling League tournament was scheduled to begin. She was getting cash out of the safe to prepare the bank deposit before the alley was to open at 9 a.m., Also in the bowling alley that day was the alley's cook and snack bar employee, 33-year-old Ida Holgan, who was in the kitchen preparing for the day. Stephanie's brother, Steve Sinak, had quickly stopped by to grab his backpack out of the office. When he arrived, the alley's door was unlocked, and so he told Stephanie she needed to keep it locked until opening time. As he was leaving, he noticed two men walking in the parking lot, but didn't think much about it at the time. Soon after he left, Melissa and Amy retrieved some change from Stephanie to get snacks from the vending machine. As they walked from the office to the vending machine, two men entered through the unlocked door and ordered them back into the office. Ida was in the kitchen preparing lunch when she heard the men come in. She thought the two men were there to help clean, but soon realized they had other plans. One man held a gun at Stephanie, Melissa, and Amy in Stephanie's office, while the other man pointed a pistol at Ida, forcing her to join the other three in the office. The gunman ordered them all to lie down and began taking about four to five grand from the business's safe. Soon after, 26-year-old Steve Turan, the alley's pen mechanic, entered the building. Unfortunately, Steve had been unable to find a babysitter for his daughter, two-year-old Valerie Turan, and his stepdaughter, six-year-old Paula Holgan, and planned to drop them off at the alley's daycare. Instead, he was quickly forced to lie down on the ground with his two young girls while one gunman continued searching the office. What happened next was colder and more barbaric than anyone could have ever imagined. The gunman, would shoot all seven victims multiple times at point-blank range. They then set fire to the desk and papers to destroy any evidence before fleeing the bowling alley. 
Despite being shot numerous times, 12-year-old Melissa somehow managed to call 911 and save the lives of her, her mother, and Ida. In the 911 call for help, Melissa initially described the two suspects as black, but further interviews led investigators to believe they were actually Hispanic with dark complexions and spoke clear English. Officers responding to the call discovered that Amy, Paula, and Stephen were deceased, all while firefighters were trying to extinguish the fire. It was said to be very chaotic at this scene, with firefighters, police, and first responders all trying to do their job and decipher the brutal scene. Two-year-old Valerie was rushed to a hospital but died after arriving. Police set up a bunch of roadblocks in and around Las Cruces within an hour of the shooting, screening anyone leaving the city. Stephanie, Melissa, and Ida were hospitalized in critical condition and unable to give any details of what happened for a couple of weeks. The media would quickly dub the murders the Las Cruces Bowling Alley Massacre. With Steve Sinek's description of the two men he saw outside the alley right before the shootings, along with the description given by Melissa, Ida, and Stephanie, sketches were created. The older suspect was said to be in his late 30s or early 40s, standing 5 foot 5 with a medium to large build and weighing between 160 and 180 pounds, with thinning hair and a skin a bit darker than the younger man. The younger suspect was believed to be in his late 20s, between 5 foot 6 and 5 foot 8, with a larger build than the older man and weighing around 190 pounds, wavy dark hair, light-colored eyes, and a mustache. They were also said to be driving an older tan or green van or utility vehicle, though it was never located. Detectives were able to lift some fingerprints from the bowling alley, but no DNA was recovered at the scene. The gun used to shoot the victims was a 22 caliber pistol, and it too has never been recovered. 13-year-old Amy's funeral took place only three days after the massacre. Her family described her as a cheerful and outgoing young lady. The next day, 26-year-old Stephen's funeral took place alongside his daughters. Not only did Stephen work at the alley, but he served in the New Mexico Army National Guard as a commander-in-chief. He had already turned in his notice after recently earning a degree in criminal justice and had plans to join the Las Cruces Police Department later that month. Unfortunately, his wife, Audrey Turan, would suffer the greatest loss, losing her husband and two daughters all in the same day. A gas station employee was shot during a burglary in the same area on the same day. Still, it was unclear if the two were related, although major crimes of that nature were few and far between in Las Cruces at the time. Meanwhile, investigators were dealing with evidence that had been destroyed by the fire and the water to put out the fire. Also, it would be two weeks before the remaining survivors would be stable enough for questioning. 
Within the next year, more than 300 potential suspects had been questioned and ruled out. Police received hundreds of tips, but unfortunately, none of them ever panned out. Authorities initially assumed that the losers were random robbers or that they had planned the murders and that the robbery was an afterthought. A couple of witnesses recalled seeing two men that fit the description at the bowling alley the night before, and one of them had hit on Stephanie. To this day, it's still unclear if these were the killers canvassing the alley or just two random men, but rumors began circulating in town that the crime resulted from unpaid debts the owner, Ron Sinak, owed, but there was no proof to back those rumors. Over three years after the massacre, the Las Cruces Sun News alleged that the police believed it involved organized crime, possibly from Mexico. The report cited that a confidential informant told police that the suspects had been hidden in Las Cruces for two days before being driven over the border to Juarez, where one of the killers was rumored to have been later killed. A woman named Irma Tajarina, who lived on Texas Street in town, was in the bar at the Welcome Inn and claimed that she harbored the killers for a couple of days after the killings. She later passed a lie detector test regarding her involvement and even recalled them listening to the helicopters searching overhead throughout the day. At one point, she said the men were looking for a large stash of narcotics and her story never wavered, even to the police. But during one of her sober periods from her narcotic addiction, she recanted her story and claimed she made it up for clout in the dope scene. She would die in 2001 of an accidental overdose at the age of 43. The community thought it was strange when Ron quickly reopened the bowling alley after the massacre. It was rumored that Ron's son, RJ, who worked the night shift behind the bar at the alley, was a cocaine addict and often made transactions while at work. In addition, the lead investigator described his behavior as very distant, detached, unemotional, and unhelpful. RJ died in 1997 of an apparent drug overdose at the age of 36. But, of course, rumors are rumors and truths are truths, and the entire Sinak family could be completely innocent of all these rumors. It was also rumored that the men were looking for a stash of drugs, and the money taken was convenient because the safe was open with cash in sight, and the survivors recalled the men searching through the filing cabinet and appearing to look for something besides the money. They even left some cash behind in the safe, leading some to believe that their goal wasn't the robbery, but either a professional hit or a message being sent to the owner, Ron, or even RJ. Authorities found it hard to believe that any locals would shoot children, especially looking a two-year-old in the eyes when he did it. A criminal profiler said the killers would be an older and younger male, with the older male being the authoritative figure. A tip came in that an older man living in El Paso, Texas, with his son, described as loners, matched the descriptions, and both had disappeared after the massacre. The older man reportedly moved to Florida, and the man's son moved back to San Diego, California. When investigators went to Florida to investigate the men further, they learned that the older man had died a few months before the killings. The alley was later sold in an auction after Ron went bankrupt. It was revealed that he was nearly $2 million in debt, had multiple mortgages related to the business, and the killings were possibly retaliation. 
Amy Hauser's mother showed up to the auction holding a sign that read, Non-payment may have cost four lives. Justice? Question mark. Ron denied any connection and blamed the press for all the rumors. Years later, Ron claimed in an interview that he was at the police station daily for about a week seeking answers starting the same day as the killings. But the police had a different version and claimed they were the ones that had to reach out to Ron on numerous occasions to discuss the case. A year after the massacre, James Chapman, a custodian at the Ideal Bowling Alleys in Rio Rancho, New Mexico, was shot and killed during a burglary in the morning time before opening. His killer, Carl Livernoy, was caught and convicted. Strangely, Ron Sinak was a previous owner of that alley as well, before it foreclosed in 1985 because of his money trouble. Although likely not related and a mere coincidence, it's still strange. Then in December, a similar massacre occurred in Austin, Texas, known as the Yogurt Shop Murders. The killings had striking similarities, as four teenage girls were all shot in the same fashion as those in Las Cruces. And get this, the shop was also set on fire. The only difference was the girls' hands were bound. Although none of the victims in the bowling alley were tied, the gas station worker that was killed on the same day as the bowling alley murders did have his hands bound. Sadly, Stephanie passed away in 1999 due to complications from her injuries. She had spent the last nine years of her life with PTSD, always fearing the killers would come back for her. Her family encouraged her to let it go and coped differently than she was coping, which caused her even more distress. Ida, shot three times, had spent the rest of her life suffering severe headaches, paranoia, and PTSD. She also says each year gets harder instead of easier. Audrey Turan says she knows she'll get her answers when she meets her babies again. Melissa, the brave 12-year-old girl who called 911 while having a bullet in her head, remains in New Mexico with her children and deeply misses her mother. Amy Eileen Hauser's mother and stepfather recalls how musically talented she was and how charming and charismatic she was. At one point, a detective strongly implied that they had two prime suspects in this case, but because they had not been charged, he didn't reveal their names. In 2009, filmmaker Charlie Mann created a film about the massacre titled A Nightmare in Las Cruces, with hopes of encouraging someone to come forward with new information and break the case. The film has exclusive footage, interviews, and is very heartbreaking. Since the execution-style shootings, the bowling alley was sold and first renamed Sun Lanes in 2009. Then the alley was sold again, and the name changed to Ten Pin Alley and has been closed since the summer of 2018. In 2020, the detective assigned to the case announced the Las Cruces police was starting over on the investigation. As of 2022, the killers have never been found, and this case remains unsolved. I want to know what happened to my twin brother. I don't know what you're talking about. You do know what I'm talking about. Gary Ray Hose and his twin brother, Jerry Lee Hose, were born in Arizona around 1968. At the age of six, they lived in Phoenix, Arizona, near Cave Creek and Greenway Roads. 
He lived there with his twin brother, older brother Guy, younger brother Jeff, mother Charlene, and stepfather Walter. On April 30, 1974, Gary disappeared in the middle of the night from his home, but shockingly was never reported missing by his family. It would be 20 years before he was reported missing on January 11, 1994, after his twin brother, Jerry, came forward to police and told them that their mother, Charlene Hose, killed Gary in 1974. Their older brother, Guy, decided in 2015 to rent a backhoe, over 20 years after being told his mother killed his little brother decades earlier. He brought it to the property in Maricopa, Arizona, where the Hose family lived in 1974, the home his mother still owns. He planned to dig on the grounds looking for signs of his brother's remains, but law enforcement said he was trespassing and forced him to leave. Authorities then began to dig on that property and the backyard of a house in North Phoenix that Gary's mother once owned. Guy and Jerry then hired a private investigator to continue searching for clues. New information again led investigators to search the home using ground-penetrating radar. Just like before, they came up with nothing. Although nothing was found at either property, the entire area was allegedly not searched. Gary's brothers still believe the key to his disappearance can be found somewhere on the three-acre property in Maricopa. The boy's former babysitter, Dora Wolf, didn't discover Gary's disappearance until 2015, when Guy made the news after bringing the backhoe to the property to dig. She recalls how Charlene used to abuse and beat both Gary and Jerry. Whenever Dora came to babysit, Charlene would instruct her to leave the twins locked in their bedroom and not to feed them or give them water. Dora would always disobey and provide them with water. Dora and her mother reported the abuse to the police, but the children were never removed from the home. Guy remembers that Walter sometimes beat them with a belt, but Charlene was the primary abuser and was responsible for many severe beatings, torture, broken bones, and hospitalizations. Guy says he was abused but got a fraction of what the twins got. The twins were abused more horrifically, but since Gary was defiant and Jerry was said to be more passive, Gary was abused the worst. On the night of his disappearance in April of 1974, Gary ran away from the home but was brought back by the police. Guy alleges that he woke up in the middle of the night to voices in the living room. He said he got up and saw Gary with both their parents in the living room. Guy says Gary was standing by Charlene and was covered from head to toe with bruises. This was the last time he saw Gary alive, and when he asked about him, his parents told him never to mention him again. Guy believes that his mother took Gary to her room that night and beat him to death, and Walter helped her dispose of his body on the property. The family moved from their home to a trailer on a three-acre desert parcel on North Maple Street just outside Maricopa County just days after Gary went missing. They lived there a year before the family moved to Boise, Idaho. While in Idaho, Charlene continued to abuse Jerry and Guy until she was arrested for child abuse. A teacher at Eagle Elementary School, where Jerry attended school, noticed several marks on his face, legs, and back and reported the incident. Charlene was charged with felony abuse and was sentenced to five years probation. 
Jerry was removed from her and Walter's care by Child Protective Services and was placed in foster care. However, Guy and the youngest boy in the family, Jeff, remained in their care. A former neighbor of the Hose family, Mary Fields, could also recall the abuse from Charlene. She would often try and help the children who were severely malnourished. They even called her grandmother sometimes. Mary remembers the boys' screams for help when Charlene was beating them. She describes Charlene as a cruel, mean woman with a serious mental illness. She reportedly told Walter to get her the help she needed and had close calls with Charlene herself. Charlene once charged Mary with a kitchen knife. Mary stated that when Gary went missing and was presumably killed, Walter had come to her patio door and loudly banged on it, scaring her. She was alone that night with her husband away at the hospital. He ran away before she had time to put on her robe. She believes Walter was going to confess to her that something had happened to Gary that night. He often came to her whenever Charlene turned violent toward him. Mary helped Guy once when Charlene burned his hand through a furnace to teach him a lesson. Mary recalled that she often called the police and even the Arizona Department of Child Safety, but whether they investigated her claims or not remains unknown. Charlene and her husband swore the property would remain untouched until both passed away. During one of Charlene's lucid episodes, she confessed that Gary's body would be found on that property. Charlene was going to pass the property down to her youngest son, Jeff, whom Guy and Jerry describe as her favorite. Walter died from lung cancer in February 2014, and Charlene died in a nursing home with Alzheimer's on October 29, 2016. Neither of them was ever questioned by police nor charged with Gary's murder. Gary would be 54 years old if he were still alive today. At this point, his family wants to locate his remains so they can give him a proper burial, but as of November 2022, Gary has never been found and this case remains unsolved. Brandon Dwayne Blancet was born on September 14, 1987. He later attended Hazen High School in Hazen, Arkansas and studied computer technology in college. At the age of 34, Brandon was divorced, living in Jonesboro, Arkansas, and working at Bumper to Bumper Auto, Planet Fitness, and Plaza Tire. Those who knew him described him as an energetic and dedicated hard worker who loved the Arkansas Razorbacks and his dog, Sandy. After both his parents passed away, he turned to religion while trying to fight the demons in his life. In 2021, Brandon was allegedly romantically involved with several different women at the same time. It was also speculated that Brandon was possibly suffering from an untreated mental illness. On October 10, 2021, he and his girlfriend, Taylor, reportedly got into an argument at her house on Wildwood Point in Jonesboro, Arkansas. He left her home and drove to the home of his ex-girlfriend, Tiara, in Sage Meadows before 5 p.m., but was only there briefly. He was described as very intoxicated and talking erratically and talking about the Bible and religion. He then left, allegedly seeking drugs. A couple of hours later, he arrived back at his girlfriend's house, and soon after, she said he left on foot, appearing to be under the influence of a controlled substance or, at a minimum, alcohol or both. 
She reported that he walked away from her house at about 7.50 p.m., going northbound, and disappeared and has never been seen since, strangely leaving his wallet, phone, car, and car keys behind. She also texted her mother at this point, letting her know that he had just walked away. For the next few days, Taylor attempted to file a missing person report at the local sheriff's office and police department. Finally, an official statement was made four days after he disappeared. Later that day, authorities arrived at his home for a welfare check, but there was no sign of Brandon. During the initial investigation, the lead detective was informed that Brandon was involved in a similar scenario less than two years earlier, but a friend had located him. Rumors began circulating, and one of those rumors was that Brandon was gone on a hunting trip, but that turned out to be false. Some speculated that Brandon may have relapsed the weekend he went missing, as he had troubles in the past with addiction, but was believed to have been clean for some time. The day before he went missing, he reportedly became very angry and beside himself when the Arkansas Razorbacks lost a football game by only one point against Ole Miss. Brandon was known to bet on sports from time to time, so maybe he was upset because he lost a bet on a game. The area he went missing from had surveillance cameras, but he was allegedly not seen on any of the footage. This helped narrow down directions that he didn't walk, but would not cover every angle if he did indeed walk away from the house that night. In fact, he is seen on video surveillance returning to Taylor's home after 7 p.m. Her house is in a populated subdivision, and the ring camera across the street documented his car arriving at her house, but the footage is dark because it was recorded at nighttime. Then, a person, who appears to be a man, comes out of her house, gets in Brandon's car, and pulls it into the garage. That man could have been Brandon, or it could have been someone else. The ring camera does not show Brandon walking away from the front of the home. Therefore, he would have walked away from the back of the house, leaving his car, phone, and other belongings behind, which is hard to wrap your head around. Over a month after he went missing, his girlfriend dropped off his cell phone, laptop, and other belongings at the police department. It's unclear why the police didn't request these items at the beginning of the investigation or why she wouldn't have volunteered these important items as soon as he disappeared. A close friend of Brandon's, Grant Cox, also brought police some items that he located in Brandon's house, such as a second cell phone, wallet, medication, and other things. Grant also started a search effort and a Facebook group dedicated to finding Brandon. Many who knew Brandon and those in the community have organized several search efforts. Another rumor began circulating that his friend Grant, whom he hadn't had much contact with for four months before going missing, was romantically involved with Brandon's girlfriend, Taylor. There have also been a lot of finger-pointing, accusations, and strong speculations regarding possible foul play and at whose hands. A few people on the Facebook group for Brandon have said that Grant and Taylor's stories are inconsistent and have often changed. It is also reported that Taylor and Grant's behavior has been strange since Brandon went missing. Grant is also accused of deleting comments, giving misleading information, and trying to deceive the people looking for Brandon. Again, this is speculation, and Grant is quick to defend himself and may be completely innocent of any involvement. 
However, it is important to note that after Brandon went missing, his guns were missing from his home that had been passed down to him from his grandfather. His house was in severe disarray, but it's unclear if that's how he usually lived. His safe appeared to have been pried on, but other valuables were untouched. A window screen was found on the ground, the door to his house had been damaged from someone attempting to break in, and the gate on his fenced-in yard was left open. The house appeared deplorable, and I believe it was his grandparents' house passed down to him, and he may not have stayed there very often. Therefore, the damage to the home may not have been recent damage. During the investigation, it was revealed that the two women in Brandon's life, Taylor and Tierra, had been harassing each other, and both have been uncooperative in the investigation. Taylor allegedly acted nervous after Brandon went missing and didn't want to discuss it. Many speculate that she knows more about Brandon's disappearance than she has let on. Do you think Brandon was the one driving his car when he returned? Do you think that he walked away from her house, leaving his belongings behind, never to return? Do you think that he met with foul play inside or after he left her home? Was Brandon having a mental health episode amplified by a controlled substance and harmed himself? Let me know in the comments below what you think. As of November 2022, Brandon has never been found and this case remains unsolved. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.